So we've spent the last four Sundays studying four occasions that angels told humans to fear not. Now, there are more than those four occasions, which prompted me to volunteer for this fifth occasion where an angel tells a human to fear not. But it seems that that's part of the angel's instruction manual. When you find an angel encountering a human, and they open up their instruction manual, it says, page one, tell the human not to fear you. Fear not. I'm going to be reading out of the Berean Study Bible translation, and so it's a slightly more uh, updated English, perhaps, and so it says, don't be afraid. It means the same thing. Let's see, we started out December, John McDowell, December 4th, taught, fear not, Zechariah. God is going to give you and Elizabeth a special son who will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. We continued with uh, Paul King, December 11th, fear not, Mary, trust that the Lord is with you. You'll be with child. He'll be great. He called the son of the most high. Then Paul came up on December 18th, fear not, Joseph, obey the voice of God and take Mary home as your wife for what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And uh, Tim concluded last week, Christmas Day, fear not, shepherds, come to Bethlehem and see what this visitor is all about. Go and worship the king. That last point, I want to look into that. You'll remember that uh, we read through Luke 2, verse 10 and following. I do have my paper Bible up here, but I cut and pasted most of my uh, verses into my notes here because it has very high content. Read it even. In Luke 2.10, we read, uh, Do not be afraid. The message of these angels says, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Note, this is good news of great joy for all the people. So we're going to continue that theme, but get to the end of the life of Christ. So this is covering the beginning, the very beginning of the life of Christ. Uh, for today's story, 33 years have passed. Now, during that time, Jesus eventually ended up being born. You may know about that. We celebrated it recently for Christmas Day. But have you ever considered the helplessness of a baby? I was just thinking about this last night. My wife and I were, were talking about this. The utter utter helplessness of a baby. A baby can't even, when, it, when you're first born, you can't even turn your head, really. You're not really coordinated enough to even move your head. You want to look at something different, and you're going to have to whine about it until somebody else does it for you, you know? And so babies are so helpless, uh, especially when they're first born. They're just completely helpless. They, they, they really can't focus their eyes, and uh, it's, it's just... What a helpless situation. And our Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of all the universe. We talk about how humble it, it is to come and be born in humble circumstances and laid in a manger instead of a royal crib, right? To be laid in a feeding trough instead of a royal crib. But think about how much more humbling it is for the creator of all of existence to make himself helpless as a baby, unable to do anything. And it says in Philippians that, that he, didn't, he regarded uh, equality with God not a thing to be grasped, and he emptied himself. Just imagine that, emptying yourself of, of all phenomenal, eternal, cosmic power <laughs> and having nothing but, you know, if you want to, to eat, if you're hungry, if you're uncomfortable, you've got one way of communication. Way! 
And so I was just thinking about how, how humbling is that? What an amazing, an amazing thing our God did in being born as a human, being born as a man. Well, he grew up. We read in Scripture that he had brothers and sisters. Uh, four of the brothers are, are named, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Uh, the sisters are not named, but they're called sisters, so presumably there are at least two. We don't know how many there were. Um, he grew up. He was, uh, you remember at age 12, the little incident where he uh, got lost, and he wasn't really lost, but his parents didn't know where he was. He had to be about his father's business. That's the last time we hear of Joseph. And so throughout the rest of the gospel accounts, uh, we only hear of uh, Mary and his brothers, or Mary and his sisters, Mary and the family. There's some conjecture that Joseph died while Jesus was relatively young, perhaps in his teenage years. And so uh, Jesus, as the oldest, would have taken over the family business of carpentry and would have continued to provide for the family. And so that might account for why it was approximately 30 years later that Jesus began his public ministry. Perhaps he needed to provide for his family until his other brothers could take over in that role. It may well be. You ever thought about what it must have been like growing up with Jesus as your brother? Ever heard your parents say, you know, why can't you be more like your brother? You know, Jesus. And so he lived a quiet life. And then one day, walking along the shores of the Jordan River, a guy surrounded by a crowd yelled out, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That began his public ministry. And so he moved from Nazareth to Capernaum. He gathered uh, 12 disciples around him devoted men who followed him when all others forsook him. One never gave his heart. One betrayed him in the end. So he moved from Nazareth to Capernaum. He set up his, uh, his home base, as it were, in Capernaum. And from there, he went out. He started going out. He went throughout all of Galilee. Galilee is northern part of Israel. That's the breadbasket of Israel. They had uh, the Sea of Galilee, good fishing there. In fact, uh, most of Jesus' disciples were fishermen. And they went throughout all of Galilee preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they went throughout all of Galilee preaching this message. He sent out his disciples to continue to preach that message. He was rejected. In fact, at Nazareth, his hometown, after reading a prophecy regarding himself, said, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Incidentally enough, reading that prophecy, only the first half of that sentence had been fulfilled. They attempted to kill him, and he uh, just moved. Yep, this is not going to happen today. And, uh, passed in their midst. So he was rejected in Galilee. He went for a while. He was, uh, after the beheading of John the Baptist, his disciples got uh, kind of stressed out, kind of depressed. Everyone fell away from him except for the 12. And so he went outside of the land of Israel for a time and ministered just to those 12. Then he resumed his ministry in Judea, and that was the populous area. And all throughout Judea, he preached, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Some followed him. Some thought that was very interesting. We read that many even of the leaders followed him. But for fear of the others, they were secret. We read of even members of the Sanhedrin, like Nicodemus. They were followers of Jesus, but, but secret Secret disciples, secret followers. I'm so glad for these secret followers because in today's day and age, there are areas where people have to be secret followers of Jesus. 
killed indeed. So he was rejected in Judea. He went to Perea. He was also rejected there. He went to Jerusalem. And in his last week, he defeated every one of the uh, parties, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and he defeated them all in wonderful public debates. And at the end of that week, he was betrayed by one of his inner circle. He asked, how can the crowd go from the triumphal entry saying, crucify him, crucify him? Well, I think it's pretty easy for a crowd to turn if, if one of the insiders betrays him, say, nope. This so the leaders said, we will not have this man to reign over us. We have no king but Caesar. So after that, in fact, in Matthew 21, 43, Jesus tells them, therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce, died, and was buried. And for today's story, it's now the third day. So we'll pick this up in Matthew chapter 28. In Matthew 28, there it is. Matthew chapter 28, starting at verse 1. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, that would be Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Another gospel says that there is actually a third woman with them. <coughs> now we'll skip, skip down and uh, see the words of the angel in verse 5 to the women. In verse 5, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. There's your fear not. Fear not. Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you'll see him. See, I've told you. Now, he said, do not be afraid. Now, we skipped over the explanation for why they might might be afraid. Why would they be afraid? Well, verse 2, which we skipped over, Kind of explains some of this. Suddenly there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, rolled away the stone, and spat on it. That's a funny. I don't know how tall this guy was. But in verse 3, his appearance was like lightning. And his clothes were white as snow. The guards trembled in fear of him and became like dead men. So, too bad we don't have better descriptions. You know, don't you want to a movie about this? Some angel like rolled away the stone. Did he push it or did he just like woke, you know, with some sort of power like a Marvel superhero? We don't know. You know, was he super tall? I don't know. How did he sit on top of it? How tall was the stone? It's usually uh, conjectured that it, it, you know, it was a relatively good sized stone. Did he just go boing, up, sit right up on top of it? So here's this guy and the guards who were guarding the tomb became like dead men. Okay, well, Something about his appearance is startling. That's why he told the women, fear not. So that's where our fear not comes from. There is some reason maybe for fear. I want to talk about fear today. That's a good thing to talk about. I looked up fear. New American or New Oxford American Dictionary says fear, a noun, is an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous, likely to cause pain, or a threat. Well, they could look at this this guy, this this angel, who rolled away the stone, who has an appearance like lightning. You know, I don't know what that means, but it's evidently scary. He's evidently not from here, right? And so these women are like, okay, <laughs> you're not, right? So listen to his message. He he basically says, you know, don't be afraid. I know you're looking for Jesus. 
Just imagine, would, would that make you more afraid if you said, hey, don't be afraid. I know exactly why you're here. I know what you're doing. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, okay, continue. And he continues. Jesus is not here because he's alive. It's all about Jesus. He only tells him, you know, he's like, listen, it's not about you. It's not about me. I'm giving you the message. You guys are coming to do this. I know what you're doing. Listen, Jesus, it's not, he's not here. He's, he's not here. This is a place of dead people. This is where dead people go. He's not here. He's alive. And he told you he would do this. And this is the first that I think the disciples put it together. And isn't it just wonderful that, that it came to the women first? I know I, uh, I enjoyed speaking about this point uh, this Easter of last year when I uh, message about the, re the resurrection. And I think it's just a, a neat thought to think that, you know, the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ went to the women first. I just love it. The sensitive ones. And they were the first ones to put this together. Wait a minute. He did say that. None of the disciples got it. In fact, <laughs> well, let me continue talking about the message. He says, come verify this for yourself. Come, look inside there. Look around. You know, verify it. There's nothing there. Nobody there. Now go quickly and tell everyone and go meet him in Galilee. In fact, probably the lease on their home base in Capernaum was, you know, probably at least through the end of the month. That's probably what he had in mind. Meet him in Galilee, away from the leaders in Jerusalem who wanted to kill them, right? And so these women went back and told the men. Isn't that interesting? Just imagine the frustration. These, these men just couldn't, back from the dead, oh, sorry, babe, that don't happen. Even though Lazarus, just very shortly beforehand, had just been resurrected. Nope, can't happen. Jesus can't come back from the dead. Nope. Of course, those women were vindicated that very evening when Jesus appeared in their midst with the doors locked. And so they quickly came to realize that Jesus is alive. But isn't that just an interesting sequence? Do you think Jesus showed up at the house in Capernaum? Or do you think you know, he just used a little bit of his omniscience and said, well, too bad those guys didn't believe him. I'll show them. Poof, there he is. I don't know. We're not told those details. Let's talk about the testimony of these women, these men, the 11 remaining men. Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians 15. He, he writes that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 15, 5, he says, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12, he just skips right over the women, like they don't count. Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at once, most of whom are still living. So some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one of untimely birth. Paul is a good example of humility. But think about that. You wanted to verify the truth of this message? Well, go ask any one of these 500 plus people, right? Go ask one. You know, did, what, what was it like? Did you see Jesus? Is he really alive? Really? Really? You saw him, your own eyeballs. Okay, you could ask. You could verify the message, the truth of the message. It's because Christianity, unlike all other world religions, rests solely and completely on the truth of historical events, acts in history. Namely, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. None of that occurred. Christianity is a if those three events occurred, Christianity is the true religion of the true God can raise from the dead. 
Christ indeed is our first fruits. So that dovetails into my next section where I want to talk about the larger meaning of the resurrection. This is the good news of great joy for all the people. This is what the good news is. Good news of great joy for all the people. It validated, it put God's stamp of approval on everything Jesus said and did. For example, he claimed to be the son of God. He claimed to be the savior of the world. He claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. Validated, vindicated, God's stamp of approval on this. He claimed to be the resurrection and the life. It validated everything that Jesus said and did. It demonstrated God's supreme power over the one part of life that we cannot defeat, that is death. Where we triumph, right? Whole industries devoted to trying to defeat death, but we cannot. It means that we'll be resurrected like him. Death is not to be feared. In Hebrews 2, verse, starting verse 14, we read, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Fear of death, all our lifetime subject to bondage. There's not one person who, if you can get them to pause and think, has a natural fear of death. Naturally speaking, if you can get an unsaved person to pause and think long enough, you'll reveal that, okay, I do actually fear that. It's a one-way, you go, but you don't come back. Now we know, as Christians, that we go and come back better. There's going to be a resurrection. We will have new bodies. But death is not to be feared. Fear of death. We fear something that would harm us. That's what fear. The angel said, fear not. For Christians, we have no fear. Jesus also is our intercessor, right? He is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us, Romans 8.34. In John 3.17, he says he did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This is good news. Fear not. Jesus is alive to always intercede for us. So a Christian has no fear of the Lord. A Christian, we, now I'm going to talk about the fear of the Lord, but we have no fear in the sense of the definition of fear, an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous, likely to cause pain or a threat. That has no place in a Christian. If you have had your sins, you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ, your sins are cleansed, there's nothing of that in in us. For example, th so, so there is a fear of the Lord, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that, but for example, in Hebrews 12, 28, uh, we have a good, a good example of a Christian's attitude. Therefore, since we are receiving an unshakable kingdom, let us be filled with gratitude, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So as a Christian, we know our God-consuming fire. And that lets us leads us to worship him with reverence and awe. I really like that translation, reverence and awe. That's a good description of the practical outworking of the fear of the Lord. Knowing that God is a consuming fire does not prompt 
what the world considers fear in us. We don't have unpleasant emotions knowing that our God is a consuming fire. We have pleasant emotions. We know it makes us smile. We say our God is a consuming fire. In fact, this cursed world is one day going to be consumed with fire and a new one created without the curse. That's good news. That makes us happy. He's a consuming fire. Amen. Consume it all. Just Thankfully, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So he's taking his time. Humanly speaking, I'm an impatient dude. I would have probably blown my top by now. But our God is infinitely patient. And so he is waiting for the salvation of any who will accept him. And so for the Christian, nothing can separate us from his love in Romans 8. He will never leave us nor forsake us. We can boldly approach the throne of God with our requests. In Hebrews 4, it says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. I memorized it in an earlier version. But boldly, we can boldly, just imagine the throne room. You know, in years past, rulers have had, in fact, Esther, one of the reasons Esther is so courageous is because she had the confidence to, to speak to the king. This is a king whom, if you came into his presence, and he didn't acknowledge you by raising his scepter or whatever, then you would just be killed. You know, so he's engaged in a conversation. Somebody walks in. He just doesn't really care. They get killed, right? Imagine the throne room of God, the holy God, who's perfect and holy in all ways. We can boldly just imagine, just pop open a door. Hey, God. Well, okay, maybe you want to do it a little bit more humbly than that. Okay, so pop open the doors and, and come in with humility, with God. But we can boldly go right in there. God, I need this. I need this. God, help me. You know, thankfully, there's no physical posturing needed, right? There's no physical posturing that matches up to God's holiness, right? What amount of ceremony would match the worth of our God? None. Can't happen. <coughs> so instead, we can boldly come right before the throne of grace. Oh, Lord, please help us. <coughs> and he gives us grace and mercy to help in our time of need. <clears throat> Excuse me. We are forever reconciled with God. So I want to talk now about this message because we have a message of no fear. The fear of the Lord is really an, un an understanding of the Lord. Right? Fear of the Lord is understanding who he is. And yes, we have reverence and awe. Our God is a consuming fire. Your eyeballs should be open and you should think, wow, God is a consuming fire. But we don't have an unpleasant emotion. That's an, you know, the fear of the Lord is a wonderful thing. What about the unbeliever? What about the unbeliever? What does the fear of the Lord do an unbeliever? Well, let's think about that now. Thinking about what, it, what would this mean to, like, my neighbors? Well, my neighbors are, you know, live on my street, you know, and I live in a pretty, you know, wealthy, you know, I, I don't have four neighbors. I don't know if any of them are rich either, but none of them are poor. I know that. I uh, did a little bit of digging about Western civilization. I was thinking about the neighbors that we here are surrounded with. Florida, in America, in our Western culture. The average income, according to the IMF data mapper, International Monetary Fund, of Western, Western modernized countries, the average income's $51,300. I was thinking when I was a, a kid, my parents were pretty well off, and they, they talked about how, you know, they were, they were really thankful that my dad had a good job, and, you know, he worked for Martin Marietta, and, you know, one time I asked him, you know, how much does dad make? What's, what's no idea? I was, you know, 10. And my mom said, my, 
your dad makes really well off. Well, average income today, well, as of the, this data sample, is $51,000. We are relatively prosperous, guys. Did some statistics. 97% of Americans own mobile phones. In fact, 85% of Americans own smartphones. That, that means you have instant communication. Anywhere you want, bam. Or, of course, nobody does that anymore, right? We now have delayed communication where I just do this and hit go and it sits in your little thing and goes and whenever you want to because we can't be interrupted by things. We, have, we live in the lap of luxury here in Western civilization. 77% of Americans own a computer. 53% of them own a tablet like this little dude. We have access to almost limitless information or, or disinformation. But yet, Western families are crumbling, crumbling and failing at an amazing rate. 61% of Americans in a Pew Research, I went to the Pew uh, Research Organization and got some statistics, 61% of Americans say legalization of same-sex marriage is good for society. Kind of interesting if you think about that, because how a society is only going to continue by procreation, and same-sex couples are going to have a hard time doing that. 32% of Americans say that they are very or extremely worried that a shooting could happen at their children's school. Divorce statistics, of course, we don't even need to go there, right? We know that they're, they're the same for both Christians and non-Christians. So the angel said, fear not, because these women were looking at something that might, might harm them, right? And the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord. So what is this, the, this fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord, I define it as an actual true understanding of who God is. Who God is. Our God is a consuming fire, is that one definition in, in Hebrews. God is a consuming fire. Who is the Lord? And we Christians know he's a consuming fire. And that causes reverence and awe in us. We are awed at our God. But for the unbeliever, the more they know about God, the more they must fear him, right? Let me show you an example of the fear of the Lord. This is an example I really like because it's in Scripture. Isaiah chapter 6 has a nice story that I think simply demonstrates the fear of the Lord. This is, this is what the fear of the Lord is. <coughs> now, remember, Isaiah was a prophet long before the birth of Jesus. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, Isaiah, Isaiah was... I'll go read it now out of here. I didn't cut and paste enough verses into my. So in Isaiah chapter 6, we have this story here. And he writes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they were flying. And they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. All the earth is for, full of his glory. This is the golden oldie. And we find in heaven the same song. We sing the same. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. So this apparently made some sort of an impression on Isaiah because he offers this explanation, which I think is a nice illustration of the fear of the Lord. He says, woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, dwelling among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He had a great example. Is that not a great example of the fear of the Lord? This is the fear of the Lord for someone. Now, 
He learns a bit about salvation, of course. One of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed, and your sin is atoned for. Anyway, we'll leave that there. But he learned a bit about salvation, didn't he? The fear of the Lord. For the believer, we know that God's love has triumphed over our sin, right? Our God is consuming fire, so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. We read that. For the Christian, the fear of the Lord is reverence and awe. Nothing can separate us from his love. We're forever reconciled with God. But for the unbeliever, it's a different thing. So if you can get an unbeliever to sit and think, which is rare these days, right? If people, if you think about it, there's a lot to be afraid of. In fact, the world itself is cursed. This world produces thorns, thistles, death. God cursed the world. He said, both thorns and thistles, it will yield for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your bread until you return to the ground. Out of it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Fear of death, all their lives subject to unbeliever. The fear of the Lord is, is real, and it's right. It's right for them to fear God, right? In Matthew 10.28, Jesus says this. He says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but kill Instead, fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. <coughs> Hebrews says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, I'm going to talk about that in with, with respect to our current culture. Our culture is just spiraling. Today's culture has relatively little fear, however, because the aim of almost all cultures is to minimize fear. In fact, the Renaissance took place largely because they had successfully provided enough safety and comfort that people could explore art, explore literature. So the, the, the Renaissance took place. Most Western countries have had relatively little peace or relatively relative peace and safety since World War II. And unless you live in a big city, most Americans live lives with little fear of crime. In fact, Westerners live with such little fear in our lives that there's an entire genre of films designed to inject a known amount of fear in you just for the adrenaline rush, horror films. Can you imagine asking a Holocaust survivor, you know, would you like to go see a horror film with me? No. I mean, they've had enough fear. But we in America, we actually, it's a genre of films. I'm personally not a fan. But to most of us, fear is just simply not something we live with regularly. Our culture today feeds you false answers to the big questions in life and then tries to stop people from thinking. In today's world, there is something called the attention economy. You've heard this term, the attention. It's something that all the big corporations must take into account. So the theory goes like this. People's attention is a resource. You all are paying attention to me. I that is a, a limited resource. Time is running out. There's coming a time when you will withdraw your attention from me, rightfully so. I hope to be a good steward of your brief attention and return it to you in good graces. So, But think about it. Apps are designed to learn as much about you as they can so they can captivate you with content that you love so that you remain engaged with their app longer and not with another. Right? This is simply the way... You know, Western culture works. 
the TikTok to, or the, the pinnacle today of attention economics engineering is an app called TikTok, which last year superseded Google as the single most used internet. Google is now number two. People in the world globally use TikTok more than they use Google. And so all this is to try and stop you from having to think about the meaninglessness of life without God. And so to reach today's culture, what do we have to do? We, now, we have an advantage. We have the most engaging message ever. Think about it. We have the most engaging, the most important message of all time for all people. We have good tidings of great joy for all people. We can say, fear not to people who are living in fear. Fear not. Don't fear people who can kill the body. Fear him who can kill both body and soul in hell. And so we must appeal to people to take the time to think about our message. This is, this is a hard thing because today's cultural culture says, entertain yourself whenever, whenever possible. Either consume or produce content unless you're sleeping. And some people try to produce and consume content while they're sleeping. But we must appeal to thought and reason. I love it when Vern Bartlett used to say when he was teaching an important subject from this pulpit, he would say, think about that for a month or two. Not enough thought going on in today's culture. We've got to appeal to people to think about, and the Holy Spirit will help us. The Holy Spirit helps us by convicting the world of sin and righteousness judgment. We can't withhold the message that judgment is to come. That's not speaking the whole truth. But we must speak it in love, which means that we must be respectful of their attention. As I am going to be respectful of yours very shortly. So, in conclusion, we must have purposeful conversations. Don't take people's attention for granted. But for unbelievers, we must share this message with them. They have everything to fear. Because as a Christian, we have, we have reverence. We have awe. The fear of the Lord is smiling at, at the thought of his righteous judgment coming and blasting this thorn, thistle, cursed earth. But our hearts won't turn. We must go and make disciples of all nations, all peoples. And so we have no fear. We have good news. We have great joy. Everyone, and we must share this, speaking the truth in love. And that's my message for us today. Let me go ahead and close in prayer super quickly, and we will have a closing hymn and depart. Our Lord Jesus Christ, thank you so much for your deep and abiding love for us. We love you because you first loved us. We thank you for this message of reconciliation. Lord, help us to share with those around us. Help us to have power with you that as Christians, we have no fear. You have indeed reconciled us. You made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might have your righteousness. Thank you, the Lord our God, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.